Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for being with me today. Hi, Will. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. One of the, on your, your long list of accomplishments in your life, one thing that I wanted to start at was your experience on Wall Street as a corporate attorney, because this was not a lengthy period of your life, but I would imagine it was a formational one in some ways. So what was a moment in your time on Wall Street when you were working with investment funds, corporate social responsibility? What was a moment there that you felt you were doing important work, particularly with a a view toward social impact? Yeah, thanks. Actually, if you don't mind, I want to back up slightly just to give you a sense of how I got to Wall Street, because that will then help provide some context for your question. I never set out to be a Wall Street lawyer. In fact, just the opposite. That would have been the last thing on my mind when I was in college and even law school. Mm -hmm. But I was very attracted to humanitarian work in college and spent time in Africa and then decided that in order to get to some of the deeper structural issues, I needed to be a lawyer and I moved more into the human rights realm and I figured that human rights was a way to get to those deeper problems. And so when I left law school, my intention was to work at that intersection of poverty and human rights. And so that was, I figured human rights offered all the tools to really get at these issues of poverty, social justice, inequality. But the trick was that human rights groups were focused on a fairly narrow set of issues having to do with things like torture or democracy, free speech, all very important, but they were not addressing poverty. And so when I left law school, I started a small group aimed at that sort of intersection between poverty and human rights. And I did that for quite a while, and I came to appreciate the fact that human rights was also limited in focusing just on governments, and that I needed, I continually came up against the problem of business. That business was as much part of the problem and potential solution as governments, but human rights didn't provide the tools. And so I decided to go back to Wall Street really as a way to get an education about business. And when I got to Wall Street, my, my plan was two years on Wall Street, and then I'm out. I'll get back to doing what I considered the, the good work of nonprofits. I ended up staying for four years. But on Wall Street, what I discovered was these institutions that I had looked at in fairly black and white terms, like mining companies, oil companies. I'd spent a lot of time in the Amazon fighting these companies, even the World Bank. I discovered that there were opportunities to work with those companies and with the World Bank in a way that could advance helpful change. And that's part of my education on Wall Street was to see things in less black and white terms and to be a little bit more nuanced. That was one of the really important learnings, I would say. And then I had a chance to work with that when I was at Oxfam. But in terms of the best work that I did, I think that was getting back to your question, I would say that I was busy setting up these large investment funds and the partners, some of the the partners in those funds insisted that the funds had to have an environmental filter. And I would often negotiate those filters with large investors and like the World Bank or or like Mm -hmm. private equity funds and insisting on significant environmental greens for these investment funds, I think was actually 
a fairly helpful way yeah. to go about it. And that might have been among the better things that I managed to do, which it's not easy to always find good things on Wall Street, but I think <laughs> on the useful side. Sure. I'm curious to know what what were the keys to convincing investors, private equity leaders, that those sorts of environmental or social goals were worthwhile and that, that ultimately they should structure those funds with social goals in mind. How did you, how did you go about convincing those actors that, that social goals were, were important in that context? Yeah, so I was a fairly unique person in my Wall Street law firm at the time because I had spent the prior decade working with communities, indigenous communities, environmentalists, fighting companies. And I took some lessons from that work. One of them was that this was at a time when online activism was really just getting a start. It wasn't that hard to wound a company in reputationally. And it wasn't that hard to create real problems for a company to stop operations. It only took a handful of activists often to blockade the work or the trucks to create enough political disruption in the local government that one of my clients at the time was a large mining company in Peru that had spent four years trying to get its operations online because the communities were constantly harassing them and the local government was harassing them. And so that my push on both the environment and social issues was your long-term, you may get some short-term wins by ignoring these issues, but long-term, if you're going to work in these countries and these communities, you need to have good relationships with civil society, with customers, with a broader set of stakeholders than just the shareholders. And you've got to do that by taking some account of your social impact, your environmental impact, and really engaging with those stakeholders up front. That that would be my pitch. And sometimes it was effective, sometimes it wasn't. It helped to have case studies like the Peruvian mine. And when I was in on Wall Street, increasingly the universities and advocates were putting together those kinds of case studies to show companies that there was a financial benefit to being more green or not in the way that it's taken now where you can reduce costs, but more you can reduce conflict. And by reducing conflict long-term, you would have an easier time. And so that was sort of the pitch and it became easier as more and more studies quantified uh, some of those risks for companies. Yeah, that's great. I, I, one reason why I'm excited to talk to you is that you have a, a very balanced perspective on tackling global challenges like land rights because you had a lot of experience working in the private sector, working as a lawyer, and then with your, your director of private sector development position at Oxfam. And then you branched out and founded a couple of nonprofits yourself. And now, of course, Lead Landessa, a leading nonprofit in the land rights space. So I wanted, I wanted to dig a little deeper into sort of this particular approach to global challenges, which is going through the private sector. And I, I wanted to reference your, your work at Oxfam America and how you did work with shareholder engagement, collaborative advocacy with corporations. What are the benefits in your mind to tackling a global challenge like land rights or, or inequality through the private sector and through 
either working at a corporation or working with corporations to, to achieve these sorts of goals? Yeah, so I was describing my own path where I was trying for a long time to address economic and social rights without looking at the private sector, just really looking to communities or governments and found that that was really impossible. The case that I spent a lot of time on, just to give you an example, was oil development in the Amazon, where one company at that time, Texaco, later swallowed by Chevron, had created 90% of the oil developments or 90% of the oil that had come out of the Amazon in Ecuador at that time was coming through Texaco. They had built the roads, they had developed the technology. And so when I came down to talk about the human rights issues and focused on the Ecuadorian government, I was met with a lot of opposition that it was just intuitive to people that the real problem here was Texaco. They, they were the ones spilling the oil. They were the ones not cleaning up. Why would we only look to the government or why would we expect the communities to be able to solve these problems without addressing the behavior of these enormously powerful actors like Texaco or Chevron? And Oxfam, where I worked later, had had a similar discovery where Oxfam was initially set up to address famine relief. That's where they got their name. And that was a, they did that through people working with people and then later with governments. And they, they spent decades working largely with communities or with governments and just basically neglected the private sector. And it was only in the really the early 90s that they started recognizing that they also had to address these large corporate actors. They had to think about markets and that their approach really would not be sustainable without engaging companies either to change behaviors or to leverage company supply chains or company technologies. Yeah. And so when we, when I came to Oxfam, I had the privilege of just almost starting fresh and thinking about how can a, an organization that's dedicated to injustices and poverty and development how could it engage with the private sector? And what we slowly developed was an approach that basically took the position that no company would ever be a permanent friend or enemy. But in each situation, you really had to look at the companies to see, are they creating the problem? Are they part of the problem? And can they be part of a solution? And so we would both pressure companies through advocacy campaigns, and we would work with companies. And we would often do that with the same company. We would be in certain areas very aggressively pushing the company and in other areas working collaboratively with the company. And that sort of mixed approach yielded, I think, a lot of good results over the decade that I was there. And still, I think Oxim does really good work with private sector, but it's important to, to appreciate the fact that companies like governments are are both part of a problem and have to be part of the solution. Yeah, absolutely. I think for many people who want to do socially impactful work, they usually think of either doing nonprofit work or going into government in some capacity because they assume that the private sector is not firmly engaged with it. it. It's not founded on those principles. But your point, and I think an, an important point to capture, is that the private sector needs to be a partner in doing social good. No 
global challenge can be solved without the actions of, of larger corporations who, who control supply chains with reference to, to the environment or inequality, who set the consumer agenda on what people buy. And, and there, there are plenty of other instances, but just to reflect your point, I think listeners who want to make a difference should certainly investigate how they can not just go into the nonprofit or public sector, but also the private sector as a, as a critical partner. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think you can do it in a couple of different ways. You can, or folks can join companies and try to be what are termed intrapreneurs, try to move the company from within. I think that can be very effective. It doesn't take that much in some cases for employees to raise awareness about issues and to push corporate leadership to take a more progressive approach on things. Companies are increasingly concerned about their reputation because they know that people joining those companies want to work for companies that are good good corporate citizens. That's a key part of why people decide whether to choose one company or another. So employees within can definitely help set a more progressive agenda. Another way that folks can think about companies or private sector is in the way that many nonprofits now have taken a a mixed approach. That's to say part of their funding will come through traditional channels like donations and contributions, but part of it will be by acting more like a company. And in Mm -hmm. some cases, entrepreneurs who want to do good will decide that the better approach is just a pure market approach and they, they will sell their services or their products, but these are designed to help people living in poverty or to help change conditions for people living in poverty. And through a more traditional market approach, they do some good. And th- these are the class of social entrepreneurs, which is increasingly, yeah. I would say, a part of the overall environment of folks working on global injustices and poverty alleviation. So there's there's room to work within the market, either within a traditional company or within one of these social entrepreneurships. And I think the key is that folks who want to do good should keep an open mind about how they go forward and, and how they view markets, which is not to say that you want to be blithely naive about the potential to do bad on the side of markets or companies, but rather just to think about where you can do the most good. And, and that may well be from inside a company. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like what you said about keeping an open mind about markets, because on the one hand, markets are very much problematic when it comes to certain environmental goals or exacerbating inequalities. But on the other hand, they're how our world is structured. And so working from within certain organizations to not work outside the market, but within the market to actually make it better and work better for the greatest number of people is is a compelling approach. I wanted to reference your your experience before we go into Landessa, your experience starting two nonprofits, the Center for Economic and Social Rights and then and then its equivalent in Ecuador. You mentioned the the concept of a social entrepreneur. Did you find yourself sort of exemplifying that 
role as a social entrepreneur when you founded those two nonprofits? And what sorts of leadership lessons did you learn over your time founding those nonprofits with respect to how people can make a big difference from that perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. When we started those two small human rights organizations, the concept of social entrepreneurship really didn't exist. And so mm. to have been called a social entrepreneur at that time would have struck me as odd. I was really just, in, I had a mindset of nonprofit work that was based on models like the ACLU or Human Rights Watch or groups or Amnesty International groups that were 100% funded by donations, whether by the public or by foundations. And uh, that was the approach we took. And our, our hope was that even as a small NGO, we could create demonstration projects that would then be picked up and have an influence on the broader field of human rights. So our, our mission was really trying to shift the way human rights was practiced. And one of the big limitations was that the funding for that kind of work is very narrow. That they're just, first, there's not a lot of funding to do international work generally. If you look at the, the <coughs> world of funding, most of it is for domestic issues, educate, higher education, opera, arts, <laughs> those, religion. So there's a narrow slice that goes to international affairs. And within that narrow slice, there's an even narrower piece that goes to advocacy-minded work like human rights work. And within that, there's the tiniest little that might go to advocacy focused on poverty. So it's a, it's a tricky game to try to raise money for that kind of work. And that was one of the big stumbling blocks. And, and it, created a, it created a dynamic where we really could, didn't feel like we were ever going to be able to successfully scale our work. And scale is so critical. Yeah. And so we, what we tried to do instead was to think of ourselves as a bit of a gadfly that maybe, as I say, through these demonstration projects, or maybe by provoking the, the broader field, we could help move human rights groups and even development groups in a better direction, but that we would always remain somewhat small, but that our hopefully our, our impact could be leveraged through other larger organizations. And I, th I think we had some influence both in moving development groups to, to adopt what's now called a rights-based approach to development, and to moving human rights groups to look more at issues of social justice and poverty. We played some small role in that. And uh, so I, I, took, I, I would say that one of the lessons for me was to try to understand the, the best route. I mean, well, let me step back. I think there's a couple of things you have to do as a social entrepreneur or as an entrepreneur or as somebody that wants to build an organization. You have to really frame your problem effectively. And I'm, I think ours was too diffuse, but figuring out what is the problem you're really out to solve. And then you got to think about a viable pathway to solve it. And again, our, our pathway wasn't all that viable when we first started because we had big hopes about all the donations that were going to flow in and we weren't really thinking about other stakeholders. And then you got to think about your own capacity. Who are your allies? Are you a natural leader? I would say one of the other lessons that I discovered at that time is that the three of us that were starting this group, we weren't particularly well equipped to be leaders. And it would have been helpful actually to bring in somebody with more seasoned leadership capacities. 
It's tough for entrepreneurs to do. I would say it's tough for founders. When you find something, when you found something, it's like your baby and you put your sweat and tears and it becomes your 24 seven. It's all you're thinking about. And it's very hard to give up some control over that. Yeah. This is part of the problem that many founders have a hard time retiring and, and letting successors take over because they still want to keep a hand in it. They still consider it to be their their baby. And I think that mentality is really important at the front end because it's just so difficult to do this if it's not a, a complete passion. But it gets in the way as you try to build a more mature organization and you need you need other capacities and you have to be self-aware about your own limitations. Yeah. That makes me think, I mean, a, a lot of follow-up questions. So I'll only ask one or two, but I, I think the the concept of a social entrepreneur is, it's really exciting for me just because it combines the your the innovation and the sort of the passion of being an entrepreneur with the inherently compassionate social impact model of of someone who's concerned about global challenges. And I think that intersection is, is really powerful. You mentioned that you felt that in the early days of your nonprofits, you guys sort of lacked that leadership capacity to perhaps to scale it, perhaps to win new allies. What sorts of qualities have you found are particularly helpful for social entrepreneurs that perhaps would have benefited you more in those early moments? Well, I'd say one of the critical ones is grit. I mean, to start something is just so mm -hmm. challenging and there's so many disappointments. So being gritty, being flexible, it's very unlikely that the first idea you have is the right idea or approach. And so you have to be willing to give up on certain ideas in order to adapt to other ones. I would say being self-aware, as I mentioned, understanding your own strengths and weaknesses, a certain amount of emotional intelligence so that you can work well with people. In some ways, I think that the classic entrepreneurs like, let's say, Zuckerberg, are viewed as lacking on that emotional intelligence side. And, and there may be something about folks that are just so driven that they're not particularly, they don't have, let's say, the same levels of social skills. But then they, I think you have to find folks that do so that you can, it's just, you can't yeah. do this work alone, ultimately. Not only do you need a good team around you, but you need to work amongst a broader set of partners and stakeholders and allies. And to do that, you have to have a certain level, I think, of emotional intelligence. So there's a whole set of skills there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be all residing in a single person. But as the leader, I think you at least have to have that level of self-awareness to, to, to know what you can do and then to know what other people you need around you to be effective. Yeah, I very much like that list and and think that based on what I've read and heard through this process of the podcast, that those are all very true. I'll ask, I'll ask one more brief follow-up to the, the social entrepreneurship role and, and sort of helping our listeners sort through 
what it takes to be a, a founder of a nonprofit, for example. And then we'll we'll turn to Landessa. You mentioned that when you were starting these nonprofits, the funding was tough, and it was a uh, sort of a you you use the word narrow slice in terms of how these organizations can or can't get funding and support. This is a sort of a big level question, but how do you think certain structures can evolve to make it easier for social entrepreneurs to get the funding and support they need? What, what changes do you think should occur, whether that's in the global development space or in education what sorts of changes would make the social entrepreneurship landscape much more effective, much more efficient, yeah, ideas like yeah. that? Well, I think there's two things. The first is this change that I saw it happen in real time, which is the move from pure nonprofit approaches to mixed or even market-based approaches. And mm-hmm. just to give you an example, I was a early fellow of a foundation called Equine Green. And at that time, all of my peers were forming nonprofit organizations purely funded by contributions or foundations. 15 years later, I went back to be a judge of the next class of Equine Green Fellows, and at least half of them had approaches that were market-based. And I would say that trend has only increased. Well, the, the move to thinking about funding narrowly in the past to now appreciating that there's many ways to go about funding a social enterprise is really an important shift. The, the second one is where do we get the resources to support all these social enterprises? And that is a conversation that's very timely. There's a new collective of social enterprise called Catalyst 2030 that is supported by a number of foundations and that is working on exactly this issue. How do we bring in more resources to the field? Some of those resources are coming from what are called impact investors who are traditional investors, but now want to see some social return on their investor investment. So they're willing to take a smaller financial return in exchange for a, a social impact, let's say. And so- yeah. Part of it's coming from the impact investors, part of it's coming from foundations looking to social enterprises. And I'd say part of it is coming from the education of the philanthropic class to think more systemically about problems. Social entrepreneurs tend to have a systemic mindset, meaning they recognize that it's not enough to just solve a small problem in one particular locality. You got to think about changing entire systems or else you're just putting band-aids on things. And the approaches, the best approaches among social enterprises are worthy of much more funding, but that will only come when donors begin to recognize that traditional approaches that look more like band-aids or that really are just addressing the surfaces won't get you there and that they've got to start shifting more resources into these longer-term system-changing approaches. And so that kind of donor education and and engagement with donors is just starting to happen. It's sort of an exciting time right now for folks that are interested in social enterprise because there's a great conversation going on about exactly what you ask. How are we going to 
we we know there's these wonderful approaches out there. They've they've proven themselves. How do we scale them up, and where do we get that additional support? Yeah. So I just wanted to summarize some of the main points you've made for our listeners, and then we'll we'll turn to your your current role. I think we we've had a, a great conversation so far about the the path that you can take to solving global challenges through the private slash nonprofit sector. And one of the points you've made that I think is really valuable and that frankly I haven't heard a lot is that the nonprofit and private sector don't necessarily need to be separate. And you can approach a global challenge like inequality or land rights through sort of a, a marriage of both sectors. And that's where social entrepreneurship comes in and this hybrid model where you are nonprofit in your motivations, but market-based in your approach, I think is is perhaps a great blueprint for helping nonprofits get the funding they need and then scale so that they can make the difference they want. And then we covered, of course, the the qualities that it takes to be a social entrepreneur. You mentioned grit, flexibility, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and your experience starting those two nonprofits and how it's important to frame your problem effectively, determine the right pathway, and also evaluate your own capacity. So I, I think our listeners love love all those points, and I'm, I'm grateful for them. I wanted to, to turn to Landessa, of course. That is your, your current role, and Landessa has achieved, uh, I would argue, and many others would, I, I think, tremendous gains in land rights around the world. And so I, I wanted to start the discussion of Landessa with a general question about its approach to, to land rights. And I read that Landessa's approach can sort of be summarized into four steps of research, design, advocate, and implement. And our listeners may or may not have heard of Landessa, but they should definitely look into it now, knowing that it's number 10 on NGO advisors' rankings of the best social good organizations. And it, it takes this unique approach to land rights where it serves as a bridge between policymakers and poor farm families. So my question is, what are the strengths in your mind to, of Landessa's approach to land rights? Yeah, good. Thanks, Will. I would start with the strength of recognizing the problem, which is to say land rights is a bit of a sleeper issue. I spent 25 years in development working on the margins of land rights and never really appreciated what an enormous problem it was. It was working with indigenous peoples and their territory rights. I was working with farmers. I was working with folks who were trying to recover from natural disasters, working with women's groups. And I, when I decided to move over to Landessa, it was in part recognizing that land has been central to so much of what I've done, but there's so few groups that are dedicated to land rights. It, it was not part of the global agenda until fairly recently. And so the first thing I would say that the, distinguishes Landessa is that we are one of the very few groups at the global level that is dedicated exclusively to land rights. And this, this is important because if you think about 
people living in poverty today, they share three basic traits. They're still rural, the majority of them, even though we're seeing a lot of urbanization, but most of the world's poor are still rural. They depend on land and they don't have secure rights to that land. And if you don't have secure rights to the land that you depend on, that creates a whole host of dysfunctions. It's difficult to get use your land as collateral. You don't have the security to know that if you plant something today, you'll still have the land in two or three years to reap the benefits of it. For women who are in many countries not allowed to own land or property, either by law or custom, it, it creates their status is basically defined as second-class citizens. And so for a whole host of reasons, land rights are absolutely fundamental. But where most of the world has focused their attention to the extent that they have looked at land is at that moment when people are having their land taken away from them. So land conflicts generates enormous amounts of attention. And that's where I used to work to the extent that I worked on land. That's where the amnesties and Oxfam's and earth rights and others tend to focus on. You have a community and the big companies coming in and taking their land away and you fight for it for many years. And maybe you get that land back for 10,000 people in the best of cases, or you don't, or maybe some people are killed in the process and you focus on those folks that were killed. Meanwhile, millions of people in those countries are living in a day-to-day state of insecure land rights, but they're not getting any of the limelight. And very few folks are addressing that piece of the puzzle. And so that's what Landessa does first and foremost. And I think what makes us effective is that we go to the to the folks that can actually make change and we work with them to change the laws, to change the policies, to, to change the way things are implemented. And we, we find those champions, we seize on certain moments where there is political openness to land trans, transformation of land laws and we secure the support of champions within government and then civil society groups who can support those kind of changes. And by doing that, we can very effectively work with governments around the world to effect changes in laws and policies that end up benefiting hundreds of millions of people from a yeah. very small number of staff. And so this is one of the reasons that I think we have consistently ranked well in the list of groups, the best NGOs, it's because our approach looks at addressing this problem at scale by working with governments and making sure that the the architecture, the legal framework is set up in a way that benefits tens of thousands or in some cases, millions of people. And that we're able to do by identifying those key moments. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, it's when a government has just changed and finding those champions within governments to be able to affect those kinds of legal transformations. Yeah. Just to give our listeners an idea of the scale, I think I, I read this factoid that that since Landessa was founded in 1967, it has helped around 180 million poor families in 50 countries gain legal land rights. So you, you mentioned that it is a scale of millions of people for an organization with not many staff, but 180 million people in in 50, 55 years is is pretty remarkable. Thanks, Will. And just to clarify, that's 180 million families. So yeah. it's, it's about half a billion people that are affected wow. by this work. Yeah, my goodness. Yeah, that I, I think that's, yeah, that's really cool. I, I'm curious to, to know how you situate land rights 
relative to other global challenges. And you mentioned that you, you lack of land rights births a host of problems where you can't use land as collateral such that perhaps you're you're stuck in poverty, you can't take out small business loans, you, you may not reap the benefits of your crops such that you can't eat healthily in some cases, so maybe that's connected to global health. But can you help our listeners understand a little more the connection between land rights and other global challenges like conservation? Let me actually go up. I, I lost my spot on my screen. But you mentioned land rights connection to nutrition, conservation, food security. I'm curious to know, because you regard land rights as this sleeper issue, how you believe that empowering people to have legal land rights solves other important global challenges. Yeah. So think of it like this. If you, they say that if you rent a car, you're not likely to wash it. If you don't own your land, if you don't have secure title to it, you're not likely to take care of it. And because it can be taken away from you at any moment. As a first step towards stewarding land or stewarding forests, we have to make those families or those communities legal stakeholders. We have to make them secure in their feeling that this is my property, or if it's a collective, this is our or our groups, our community's property or territory. And that gives people the incentive to then take care of it, to invest in it. And once you give people that foundational security, which is so common in the West, yeah. many of the listeners of this podcast, it would come as sort of an odd idea that land wouldn't be titled. But if 90% of the land in Sub-Saharan Africa has not been titled, that means most mm. of the people wow. are living on land that they don't securely own. And that can be taken away at any point. And so if you just imagine what that... That change from feeling insecure about your land to feeling secure would would do for your motivation to then start investing in it. It's like when people get their first yeah. house and they suddenly want to build and take care of it and create a, 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 a living space that is healthy. And that's exactly what happens when people get that security around their land. They start investing in it. They work it. And we know that if on the on the contrary what happens in some cases to women for example is they will work a small piece of land they will create better soil more irrigation the vegetables will be growing well and then it'll just be taken away from them and so there's this perverse disincentive for women in particular all around the world not to invest in their little vegetable plots or their little piece of land that might help feed the family because if they build it up too much, they don't have the legal rights to it and it can be taken away from them. So you can see that that would spur, once you get that legal sense, we know from studies that investment goes up, livelihoods go up, income goes up. If the women are equal and owners and they become more powerful in deciding where that income goes, they invest it in their children. Education numbers go up, nutrition goes up, a whole host of things goes up once you address that critical piece of the puzzle. And for environmental issues, there are now many studies showing that the best way to protect our forests is by giving people that live in or around or use those forests the legal rights to them, and then they become the stewards 
of those forests rather than old school environmental approaches, which was basically to ignore the people and to try to create these parks, which does not address all of those people that are incentivized then to scavenge or to take as much from the forest as they can because they have no long-term interest in that forest. And so giving people a long-term interest turns them into stewards, and that has been demonstrated over and over. And the critical piece there is the property rights, the land rights. Yeah. That's wonderful. I, I'm going to ask one more question about the topic of land rights, and then we'll we'll turn to our more general closing questions. I'm curious to know your thoughts on how the issue of land rights will evolve in the coming years, because in my mind, and this may, this may be misplaced, but I see the growth of internet access and other tools for economic empowerment as sort of changing the, the importance of land rights, at least as, a, as perhaps not the only vehicle for people to achieve economic security, but perhaps complemented by other emerging pathways like online school, for example. So how do, you, how do you envision land rights evolving as the landscape for people getting out of poverty and inequality shifts in the next few years? Yeah, I would say we focus on those people living poverty or extreme poverty. And land rights gives them the ability to build their income to some degree. And that is critical as a first step, but it's not the end of the story. It has to be a building block and viewed as a building block. And in those economies where we've seen tremendous economic growth, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, now China, much of that can be traced back to this initial decision to formalize land rights for smallholder farmers. Mm. That doesn't mean that those people are always going to be smallholder farmers. The hope is that then they, they build a small base, they become consumers, they send their kids to school, their kids then become entrepreneurs in other ways. It's just the first step. And as long as you have large amounts of rural population, you need to address that land issue, regardless of what's happening with the rest of society. So I, I, it's going to be a building block for at least the medium term. As long as there, there's significant rural populations out there, um, eventually countries do tend to move in a direction where there's less and less smallholder farming going on and they develop just like we have in the U.S. or Europe. The economy grow and people find other ways to make a living. But you have to have that building block. Where, where I think you'll, you're going to see movement in the land sector, though, is from leveraging all the new technologies, whether that's drones or GIS mapping yeah. or blockchain or smartphones. There's a whole host of new technologies that are just beginning uh, to penetrate the land sector. And that should really speed up the capacity of governments to formalize these rights. And I think that's going to be a real boon for our particular field. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think it's important for our listeners to understand that before we can achieve a lot of other goals for solving global inequality, arguably land rights are the first step or one of the first steps. And you put this nicely where 
not until poor farm families have land rights can their children go to school, can their children become entrepreneurs and politicians and people who then can create a, a better future for everyone at scale. So I think that that is a very compelling case for, for focusing on land rights. I want to ask one question about how people can get involved in the short term on land rights, and then I'll ask my concluding question. I think for a lot of people, they want to make a social impact, but they're not ready to commit their lives to it or, or spend a lot of time on it. And so I, I try to help listeners understand what they can do in the span of a single day to help contribute to solutions in these areas. So what in your mind are the best paths to helping advance land rights or, or other equalizing elements in, in the developing world in the span of a single day? What, what, is, what is that approach in your mind? Yeah, well, I would say <laughs> in one day, it's a little tricky to solve a problem, but well, yes. one, of the big, one of the big challenges that we still have in the land sector is the lack of awareness about why this issue is so critical. And so if mm -hmm. I were to push for taking advantage of one day's work, it would be helping to highlight the critical role that land rights plays as a foundation to so many other development challenges that we care about, whether that's climate change or women's empowerment or poverty or social justice. Helping other people understand and make those connections is a really important first step. Yeah, Highlighting those, the importance of land rights then can help bring more resources into the sector, can help bring more powerful actors, including companies, to think about land rights can help move governments in the right direction. But a lot of that has to start by public awareness and public engagement. So that's where I would mm. push folks. And if sure. people are, in fact, interested, of course, I'd push them to our website provides lots of information and ways to engage through social media or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, that I think is that that makes total sense. I was going to ask that the final question was going to be sort of your vision for the world ahead after land rights are sort of this this universal idea but but i think i think we've sort of captured that already the idea that if land rights become near universal or at the scale that landessa works for that more poor farm families will achieve livelihood will escape poverty and in so doing join the the growing body of people who are interacting on the internet who are gaining education who are getting stable jobs and who are who are helping build a better world as part of our our economy and our collective social consciousness that seems like that's sort of the the vision does that seem like yeah, a fair well, well done You're yeah <laughs> okay. I feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's nicely put. And I would just suggest that to folks that are looking for ways to get engaged, folks that may be at the front end of their prof professional track, hmm. look for issues that haven't really received as much attention. Look for new ways. There's so much going on that's disruptive today Think about how to bring new approaches to old issues and how to identify 
issues that merit more attention. And the reason that I'm so excited about land rights is because it hasn't received nearly as much attention as many other development challenges. So there's still lots of different ways to engage with this sector. And there are new technologies and new approaches that are disrupting the way we do business in a very promising way. And so there's just, I think, a lot of really interesting work to be done. But if Landsec, if land rights isn't the passion, then find that issue and look for ways, often locally, to engage with something. And hopefully, through action, through small actions, you build an understanding and you create the kind of motivation to then mobilize at larger scale. But just starting, I like your one day at a time uh, approach. Uh, I do think that the best thing people can do is just take small actions and start getting engaged and find out, find your way from doing rather than trying to map it all out in advance. Yeah. And I, I suppose we're, we're very much on the same page because my last question was going to be this, this more general question of what do you tell people who want to change the world? but don't know how. And I'll give you a chance to perhaps add on to, to the answer you just gave, because that's sort of a more general question than, than what I've been asking. But I think you, you sort of already answered it, which is that you should get very deep about the issues that need more attention and how, how exactly your skills can, can lend themselves to to solutions. So uh, I'll just give you the, the opportunity to sort of finalize your answer to this, this general question that I think our listeners enjoy hearing, which is, in a general sense, what do you tell people who want to change the world, but who don't know how? Yeah, well, I, I would suggest start at a viable scale. You don't need to change the world this week. Look for small things you can do in your family or your community, and look at some of the stories of people that have come before you. You also don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are so many entrepreneurs out there that have either tried or tried and failed or tried and failed many times and then succeeded. I have always found inspiration in reading about how others have gone about it before me. And I think there's just so many inspiring people and inspiring ideas out there that you don't necessarily have to come up with your own ideas to be to find your path, but start with the smaller stuff and try to build some momentum that way. I think that is a fitting way to conclude our conversation, ladies and gentlemen. That was Chris Jocknick and Chris. It was a great pleasure to talk to you about a a very understated issue in global development, and also to hear from someone with such enlightening experience in, in social entrepreneurship and, and working to, to make the world a better place. So Chris, it was a, it was a delight. Thank you very much for your time today. Yeah. And thank you, Will. You do a great interview. That was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you.